thank you again, everyone, for coming out tonight. It is good to see everyone here this evening. For our time in the Word of God tonight, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bible there, I encourage you to turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. And I want to look tonight at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Before we look at these verses, though, let's go ahead and read them. Let me read them and you follow along. Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired nor have taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And their lawlessness, I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. The title of the message tonight is The Sufficiency of Christ's Sacrifice. The Sufficiency of Christ's Sacrifice. But let's go to the Lord and ask Him to help us with our time in His Word tonight. Bow with me, please. O oh, great eternal heavenly Father, we come to this night and we set aside the busyness of our week and we set aside the things that normally we might do on a Friday evening to come and to contemplate, to meditate, to think about the crucifixion of your eternal Son, the crucifixion of the one for whom died for our sins. And Lord, we want to understand in a deeper way the total sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. And Father, for those things which we will hear tonight, which we have heard before, burn them ever deeper into our hearts and our minds and our souls. And Lord, help us to live ever more 
by these truths in a way that glorifies and honors you. For such love as your love in giving your Son, and such love as the Son had for you to be obedient, and such love as the Son had for us, demands our all, demands our life, demands everything of us. By grace tonight, Lord, continue to illumine our minds according to truth in such a way that we find ourselves strangely stirred by the Spirit to give our all to you in everything. In Christ's name, amen. Again, the title of the message tonight is The Sufficiency of Christ's Sacrifice. And, and I want to talk specifically about the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice to make sinners perfectly right with God according to His holy, righteous, just standard. Think about that concept. To make a sinner perfectly right with God, not according to our standards, but according to His holy, righteous, just standard. And I think to understand the magnitude of the blessedness of knowing that you are right with God, it would help us, before we look at Hebrews, to go to the book of Psalms again, this time to Psalm 103. Turn there with me to Psalm 103. And I want you to see in this psalm where King David, who had faith in God, where King David, who had followed the sacrificial system according to the law, he knew, he knew he was not perfectly right with God, and it troubled him. You can see this in Psalm 103. I want to just look at verses 6 through 14, and I want you to notice how in verses 6 through 8, he has comforting, calming, pleasing words. And then in verses 9 through 10, he is disturbed, and he is troubled, and he is upset. And then back again to verses 11 through 14, he has comfort and he has calm and he has peace. And when we get done reading this, I want to talk a little bit about that, that, that difference there in the middle where he's disturbed and he's troubled and he's upset. And I want you to understand why he's disturbed, why he's troubled, and why he's upset in the midst of being in a state of calmness, in a state of comfort and pleasure. Verse 6, the Lord performs His righteous deeds and His judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the sons of Israel. Listen to these comforting, calming, pleasing words. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And now comes the disturbing, troubling, upsetting words. The same God who is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. David also says he will not always strive with us. He will not keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Now he's moved back to these comforting, calming, pleasing thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far He has removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. 
for he knows our frame is but dust and he is mindful that we are but dust. So why, in the midst of these comforting and calming and pleasing words, does David still find his soul disturbed and troubled and upset? Because he knows that although God says his sins are forgiven when he offers up the blood of a bull or a goat, and although he knows that God considers him to be right with God when he offers up these sacrifices, he knows that the blood of a bull and a goat cannot make sinful man right with an eternal God. He knows that the blood of a bull and a goat cannot adequately satisfy the holy, righteous, just standard of God. When he, a finite sinful man, sins against an infinite holy God, when he, the creation, sins against the creator, how can you just offer up the blood of a bull and goat and expect that to appease, to satisfy the righteousness of God? He knows that cannot happen. So until he sees that happen, there is some troubling, disturbing thoughts in his mind. Such are the thoughts of all the true Old Testament worshipers. The writer of Hebrews talks about how their consciences bothered them. And it's with the backdrop of that Old Testament system of sacrifices that the writer of Hebrews now is going to show us how the sacrifice of Christ can make you perfectly right with God according to His holy righteous, just standard. Because the sacrifice of God's Son is not like the sacrifice of a bull or a goat. The blood of Jesus Christ is the blood of the eternal Son of God. That is not like the blood of a bull or a goat. Now, let's go back to the book of Hebrews and let me show you this from what the writer of Hebrews has for us tonight in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. In the first four verses, the writer of Hebrews here, again, he talks about the law. And he talks about the sacrifices given under the law. The first thing he shows us in verse 1, the first part of verse 1, is he shows us the shadowy nature of the law. Listen again with me in chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. You see, the law is a...
with God. The shadowy nature of the law did provide some degree of provision for sin, but it could not deal with sin in a manner that could make one perfectly right with God. The shadowy nature of the law was meant to be a constant reminder of one's need to be made right with God. You see, the shadowy nature of the law was a means by which Old Testament believers could demonstrate their faith. It did enable them to demonstrate their faith, but the shadowy nature of the law was also meant to continue to remind those Old Testament worshipers there has not yet been a sacrifice that is good enough, that is perfect enough to satisfy the righteousness of Christ. You must look for that sacrifice. See, the true worshiper in the Old Testament should have been looking looking where is the perfect sacrifice the shadowy nature of the law was meant to cause one to long for the real substance of which the shadow was only a dim pale resemblance it was a reminder that sins had not been dealt with it was a reminder of one's guilty conscience it was a reminder that one did not yet have true access to God now in the rest of verse 1 and through verse 4, we see the limited nature of the law. The shadowy nature of the law was a reminder of the limited nature of the law. This limited nature of the law is clearly expressed in these verses. And when we consider the limited nature of the law, we can see exactly where it falls short and where the good things to come of which the law is a shadow will surpass the law in value. You see, when we see the limited nature we're going to see exactly where it falls short. And we're going to see exactly what we need to look for. So let's read the rest of verse 1 and then through verse 4. Talking about the shadowy nature of the law. It can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be, otherwise would they have not have ceased to be offered. Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had a consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The law could not alleviate the need for continual sacrifices. The law could not make perfect those who wanted to draw near to God. The law could not provide a clear conscience in regards to knowing that sins had been adequately and righteously dealt with according to the justice of God. The law could not deal with sin adequately and righteously according to the justice of God. That's the limitations of the shadow. And we should look for those limitations to be answered in the good things to come, in the sacrifice to which the shadow was pointing to. Jewish religious leaders and those like them did not seem to understand these great spiritual truths. They didn't understand the limitations of that law. They also, this is also a charge that could be made against those who claim to be Christians today. There was good in the shadow, but even the good could be missed if the heart were not right. See, there's good in that shadow. There's good because it causes you to look for the, for the true sacrifices. But if you don't have a right heart, you're going to miss out on the good that was even in the shadow. 
Many worshipers of Christ today lack the heart to truly understand the significance of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. John MacArthur says we have a superficial, shallow, truncated, popularized understanding of God. This is a massive problem. He states that the infantility of the church, the immaturity of the church, the superficiality of the church, the cheesiness of the church, the cheapness of the church, the shallowness of preaching is related to an inadequate understanding of the greatness of the glory of God. You see, the Jewish religious leaders, they didn't understand what the shadow was telling them because they didn't understand the true glory of God. And today in our churches, we have people who are worshiping who do not truly understand the significance of the sufficiency of the Christ, of the sacrifice of Christ, because they don't have a true view of the glory of God. Isaiah is an example of one who truly understands the glory of God. When he saw the holiness of God, he responded like this, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. Simon Peter, when he saw Jesus Christ perform a miracle, he understood the glory of God. And you can see how it affected him when he said, he fell down at Jesus' feet and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinner. In Luke 7, 47, we read, For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. This is a response that Jesus gave to Simon the Pharisee when a very sinful woman came into his presence and began to weep and her tears fell on his feet and he, she began to wipe those feet that were mixed with tears and the dirt of the road, road with, 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 with her hair. And Simon Peter, the, the, the owner of the house, the, the one who lived in the house, who was presenting the meal, he, he began to be very agitated at this woman and he even began to become very agitated at Jesus and he began to have very low thoughts of Jesus, not speaking them out loud, but in his mind he's thinking, who on earth is this person that would allow such a wicked, sinful woman to come in and touch him. How can he be a prophet? Well, Jesus being God had the ability to read Simon's mind. And so he told Simon a parable. And the point of the parable was those who are forgiven much, love much. And he brought the point home when he said to Simon Peter, you see this woman, she loves much because she knows a, she's a sinner. And she needs forgiveness of sins. She understands her sins. So she loves much. But you, Simon, you didn't even offer to bring in water and wash my feet. You showed no such love for me. Why? Because you have no comprehension whatsoever of the depths of your sin. You see, you can't truly appreciate the person of Jesus Christ. You can't truly appreciate the sufficiency of his sacrifice. You can't truly appreciate what it means to be made right with God, to be a sinner and stand right with God until you understand the glory of the holiness of God and it causes you to see yourself in your sin. You must see yourself in your sin before you can truly have a humble heart and live lives of reverence and worship. 
and be eternally grateful for the sacrifice of Christ and to be content to be able to give up all things for the sake of Christ and to be able to rejoice in all things, even those difficult times in your life, and to always be expectant and to give thanks in all things, for this is Christ, God's will for us in Christ Jesus. You see, that type of life, that type of heart that, that, that truly understands the significance of, of the sacrifice was missing in the Jewish religious leaders, and it's also missing in many in the church today because they failed to comprehend the holiness of God in such a way that gives them a true picture of the depths of their own sin. Let's go on now and let's look at the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. The sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice to make us perfectly right with God according to His holy, righteous, and just standard. It is sufficient because the sacrifice of Christ was given perfectly according to the will of God. Number one, this sacrifice that was offered up for your sins was given in perfect accordance with the will of God. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says... Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not taken pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, God. Jesus says, I have come to do your will. The will of God concerning the sacrifices of Christ was to bring an end to sacrifice, and to make sinful man perfect in such a way that a sinful man might be able to draw near to God. The will of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was to bring a, 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 a cleansing of the conscience of the man or the woman who knew that there had not yet been a sacrifice adequate to satisfy the holy and righteous and just penalty. Of God against sin. When the eternal Son of God stood on the edge of heaven, ready to come to this earth, he did so to fully and completely accomplish his Father's will. In order for the Son to be able to fully and completely accomplish the will of the Father, the Father had to prepare a body for him. And in that body that the Father prepared for the Son, the Son came to do the will of the Father. John chapter 6, verse 38. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Apart from Jesus actually submitting himself to crucifixion, his desire to do the Father's will is perhaps most clearly revealed in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46, we see three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to his Father in heaven something to the effect, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The God-man Jesus Christ in his humanity could never have been moved to be more reluctant to follow the will of the Father than he was at this point. Yet even then, he followed through and obeyed the will 
of the Father. In the humanity of the God-man, he could have never been more reluctant to father follow the will of the Father than at that point. See, he knows that just hours separate him from the cross. And he knows on that cross, it's not just the horrific pain of crucifixion that he's going to go through. He knows he's going to bear the sins of those whom God would redeem. And he knows the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon those sins. He knows the sins of all those Old Testament worshipers that were truly worshiping God. He knows those sins have not been justly dealt with. And he knows those sins too are going to be put upon him. And the wrath that David knew had not yet come, was going to come, and it was going to come upon him. And Jesus in his humanity could never have been more reluctant to follow the Father's will than at that point, but yet he says, not my will, but your will. Such wholehearted devotion to the will of God is the basic necessity to making a sacrifice pleasing unto the Lord God. We need to remember that the will of God, which the Son of God came to fulfill, is the will of God concerning His eternal plan for our redemption. This is the will of God concerning the forgiveness of sins that man might receive through the blood of Jesus Christ. This plan was drawn up in eternity past. This plan was drawn up before time itself. And it was drawn up because of the kind intention of God. And it is being accomplished according to the purposes of God. Who does all things according to the counsel of the triune Godhead. This is God's eternal plan. Before time, it is His plan. And it is being carried out according to the purposes of of the triune Godhead. Jesus Christ was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. But this would not have happened if the Son had not been willing to be obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross to the will of His Father. Jesus was not coerced into this obedience. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, we read that the Lord Jesus Christ gave Himself he wasn't coerced. He wasn't forced. He himself, freely of his own volition, gave himself for our sins so that we might be saved from this present evil age. And that he did so according to the will of God the Father. This is not to say that the Old Testament sacrifices could not have been perfectly done according to the will of God. They could. The Old Testament sacrifices, they too were offered up in, in perfect accordance with the will of God. It just wasn't the will of God for those sacrifices to be an adequate payment for sin. And oftentimes the Old Testament worshiper did offer up those sacrifices in, in, in perfect keeping with the will of God. How does he offer it up in perfect keeping of the will of God? How does a man or a woman in the Old Testament offer up the sacrifices according to the law in a way that is in perfect keeping with the will of God? He does it out of a heart of faith. He does it out of a heart of faith. The problem was that throughout much of the history of Israel, Israel lacked true faith. The vast majority of Israel from the time of the Exodus until the time of Christ had forsaken faith in God and had replaced faith with the symbol of faith. Rather than having a heart of faith, they depended upon their adherence 
to that which was the symbol of their faith. Now listen closely to this. It's a bit of a tongue twister. Their unspoken attitude was, they never said this out loud, but this was their attitude. I do not need faith that is exemplified by a broken and contrite heart. I do not need a faith that is manifested by a heart that is fully devoted to Yahweh. I do not need to confess that the Lord God, he is one and there's no other. I do not need to love this one and only true God with all my heart and soul and mind. I don't need all that. Why? And this was the heart of the majority of the worshipers of Israel. Why don't they need that? I have the symbols of faith. Who needs faith? I have the sacrifices. I have the temple. I have the covenant promises and the law. I am a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't need to really have faith in what I'm doing. I can just do it. I can just put my faith in my practice of doing it. And that makes me right with God. What these Israelites had done was what mankind is doing today. They've recreated God in their own image. And a God that exists to fulfill their own desires. A God who exists to operate according to their will. In the mind of these Israelites, their desires had become God's desires and their will had become God's will. Listen, it is one thing to set aside the Old Testament sacrifices of bulls and goats for one's own self-made, self-centered means of worshiping God. That's one thing. What they did, that's one thing. It is a total different thing to set aside the eternal, sufficient sacrifice of the Son of God for one's own self-made, self-centered means of worshiping God. What they did was one thing. What people do today in setting aside faith in the sacrifice of God and replacing faith in the sacrifice of God with whatever they want to replace it with, their good behavior, their church attendance, their well-meaning, their whatever they want to replace it with. That is a total different thing. Just listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28 through 31. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who is trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. In the end, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Old Testament worshiper of God twisted the Old Testament means of sacrifice to meet his or her own fancy. We dare not do that today. We need to be sure <coughs> that we understand it is not only essential for the sacrifice to be offered up according to the will of God, it is essential that we treat the sacrifice according to the will of God. The second reason that the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient is because it replaces the old system of sacrifice under the law.
Look here again with me in Hebrews chapter 10, this time verse 8 and 9. (coughs) By faith, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8. After saying above, sacrifice and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. The sacrificial system under the law was never designed to be used endlessly. It had a built-in date of determination. This was because it was by its very design meant to cause people to long for that sacrificial system that would replace it. God's focus was always on the sacrifice of Christ that would be done in connection with the new covenant. This also was to be the focus of his people. What makes Christ's sacrifice sufficient is it is the sacrifice that replaced the old means of sacrifice under the law. The means of sacrifice under the law, they were never meant to be permanent. They had a date of termination. And the date of termination came when Jesus Christ offered himself up on the the cross. A third reason that the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to make us right with God is because the sacrifice of Christ sanctifies the believer. The sacrifice of Christ sanctifies the believer. Look at verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The word sanctified here means to be set apart. It is a verb that is in the perfect tense which means it's an action that once it takes place, the consequences of that action always remain. From the moment that you put faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, from the moment you embrace His sacrifice, you are set apart. You now are a saint. Though you were a sinner, now you are set apart unto God. And once you are set apart unto God, you are always set apart unto God. The sacrifice of Christ sanctifies the believer permanently. This is a positional sanctification. We see this in Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, you turn there with me. In Colossians chapter 3, verse number 1. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, we've been raised up with Christ. In Ephesians, Paul says we have been We have been resurrected and we are set on high with Christ. That is our position spiritually. We're set apart. But there's also a progressiveness to that sanctification. You see that here in Colossians chapter 3, the rest of verse 1 through verse 10. If you've been raised up for Christ, if you've been set apart, if you've been sanctified, then this is how you're to live. This is how you know you're truly sanctified. This is how you know you truly have been set apart. You look at how are you living. The life of the Christian cannot be separated from his position. Listen to the life. You keep seeking things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's the positional sanctification again. You've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Because of that, there's a progressive sanctification. I don't have my mind fixed on things of the earth. I have my mind fixed on things above. 
when Christ, who is also our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. In them you once also walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside with anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of one who created them. See, something comes along with this having been sanctified. And if, and if we truly are, are, are honoring the sacrifice of Christ, if we truly have a heart that believes in the sacrifice of Christ, we will, we will see the need for this progression to be happening in our lives. We will see the need to be dead to morality, to, to be dead to impurity, passion, evil desire, greed. We will see the need to put aside anger, wrath, and malice, and slander, and abusive speech from our mouths. If we don't see the need to do that, then we are treating the sacrifice of Christ according to our own fancy. And anyone who begins to understand the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ and would treat it according to his own fancy is not yet made right with God and is still under the judgment of God. The sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice to make us right with God is because it is a sacrifice that removes sin. Go back with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for all, sat down at the right hand of God. We've gone from one many priests to one priest. We've gone from many sacrifices to one sacrifice. We've gone from those who are standing to Christ who is seated. We've gone from the ineffective to the effective. We've gone from unfinished work to finished work. Christ's sacrifice has removed sin. Another reason that it is sufficient is because it's through Christ's sacrifice that the enemies of Christ are destroyed. Verse 13, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. God has destroyed his enemies through his crucifixion. A sixth reason that this is a sufficient sacrifice is because not only does it make one a saint, it makes one perfect forever. Verse 14, For by one offering he is perfected for all time, those who are sanctified. We are perfected for all time. We have been made perfect with God. And it is a sacrifice that fulfills the promise of the new covenant. In the new covenant, God promised that their sins and all the deeds would not be remembered anymore. It is through this sacrifice that they are no longer remembered. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. Amen.